while they do, I want to just welcome those who would be uh, joining us this morning uh, through our podcast. We are uh, we're just glad you guys have joined us. Really good to have you with us. And uh, before we look into the scriptures, though, this morning, I, I do want to just say a couple things about uh, the upcoming porn debate and the uh, Porn and Parents Weekend. I, I want to say something more about that. I, I recognize, I want to acknowledge that I surprised uh, a lot of you with that big announcement this last weekend. And um, I think if, you, if, you've, if you've ever wondered if it's really a big deal, this issue of pornography um, in our community and, and really throughout the world, if you ever wondered if that was a big deal, two significant events happened this week that really reminded me of the importance of this. First of all, I don't know if you guys have been following the story of the young man in Georgia that allowed his uh, child to die in the back seat of his car. Uh, have you been following that? Are you aware of what I'm talking about? If the allegations are true, and of course that's always an if, right? If the allegations are true, though, it appears that he was sexting with other women while his baby died in the car. This last week, I also met with uh, a sexual violence detective here in the city of Evansville. And I wanted to tell him what we're doing and tell him kind of why we're doing it. And, and he was just absolutely thrilled uh, with this. And he put me in touch with uh, a lot of people who will help us spread the word about this. But during the conversation, he said to me, and these were his words, he said that pornography is an untalked about epidemic in this city. And he said it transcends race and all socioeconomics. Pretty remarkable. And he said this, he, well, he went into greater detail than, frankly, I wanted to hear about the problem of child pornography in this city. And then he told me, he told me that in 10 years of being a sexual violence detective, he said every stripper and every prostitute in this city that he has ever spoken with was sexually abused as a child. And for me, all of this just reinforced, uh, Mark, there's a ringing in the speakers that I'm hearing, if you don't mind to work on that. All of this reinforced for me the importance of what we're doing in this discussion about pornography uh, to change the city. And I, I really don't believe that there's a bigger issue that we could tackle. And there are some that would be uh, maybe less difficult to tackle, but I don't think there's a bigger issue that we could tackle than this one. And I want to thank you for your support of that. Uh, I want to thank all of you who've been doing all the Facebook posts and the tweets and things about it. Keep up the good work. We'll be talking more about it in the weeks to come about how you can be a part of this and about other ways that you can serve with us in this. But I want to thank you so much for what you've been doing. Okay, enough about that. If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bible this morning to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. And we are in a series that is really carrying us through most of the summer, and it's called The Legend of Joe Jacobson. And I just want to give you a little brief review of this series um, as you're turning to Genesis chapter 39. Joseph, or Joe, is the favorite son of Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel. The family from which Joseph comes from is profoundly dysfunctional. His brothers hated him. In fact, they hated him so much that they sold him to slave traders who took him to Egypt, and then they sold him again to the chief executioner of Egypt. But Joseph uh, prospered even in that circumstance, and he rose to prominence within 
uh, this executioner named Potiphar's home. And Potiphar put him in charge of his entire estate. But this guy's wife, Potiphar's wife, sees that Joseph is not only gifted and wise, but she also sees that he is eye candy. And she demands sex from him. And he refuses because he says it would be wrong. It would be wrong for me to do that. And she won't take no for an answer. And she just keeps going after him and keeps going after him. And I want to pick up the text. I want to pick up what the story tells us in verse 11 of Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. And again, let's start at verse 11. One day, Joseph went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She, that's Potiphar's wife, caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand, ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Now, I just want to stop for just a moment. We'll keep reading, but just one moment. I think, I think any reasonable person would agree that given all this young man has been through, uh, being sold into tra- uh, slavery by his brothers and, uh, and then being sold again by those slave traders and, and, and now being a slave to Potiphar. I think any reasonable person would agree that given all that he's gone through and, and the, the noble way that he responded to this temptation, I think anybody would say, if, if there's any justice in the world, if there is a God in heaven, he will come through and he will vindicate Joseph so that he doesn't have to go through any more trouble than he's already been through. Don't you agree? Isn't that what any reasonable person would say? Don't you think that that's what Joseph would have been praying for? Okay, pick up the reading. Look at verse 16. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave that you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Verse 19, when his master heard the story that his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. I want to say from the outset that the fact that the chief executioner of Egypt put Joseph in prison as opposed to killing him probably, we don't know this for sure, but probably was a sign that he wasn't convinced of his wife's story. Maybe this wasn't the first time this had happened. Maybe he'd seen other things like this from her before, but he had to put on a front of doing the tough thing, and so he throws Joseph into prison. We don't know that for sure, but I think that's, I think that's highly probable. As happy, though, as I can imagine that Joseph was to stay alive, this would begin a long, long stay in prison for a crime that not only did he not commit, but that he responded with integrity to the temptation. That doesn't seem right, does it? Of all the temptations in chapter 39 that we've discussed so far, the temptation to abuse power, sexual temptation, I think maybe the most difficult temptation that Joseph must have faced in this whole thing was the temptation to despair. The temptation to despair. He did all the right things. 
in the way that he handled all of this, and God didn't come through for him, at least, at least not in the way that surely Joseph would have been praying for. And if you read into chapter 40, you'll see something very similar happens again, what seems like a very real chance for Joseph to get out of prison and for God to come through for Joseph in a, in a big, miraculous way. Um, it's going to disappear before his eyes. And it will turn into another two-year stay in this dungeon to which Joseph has been banished. And you know, I, th- I think when you, when you know that you've done the right thing and yet God allows your life to blow up in some way, there is enormous temptation to despair in those moments, isn't there? Like, like you did the right thing, but your marriage blew up. Or you did the right thing at work, but you lost the account to someone who uh, played unfair. Or maybe you lost your job. Or a loved one just died in spite of all the prayers that you prayed for that person to be healed. Those situations bring an enormous temptation to despair, don't they? And to make matters worse, as in Joseph's case, sometimes the one who's really guilty goes scot-free. And then you really feel the temptation to despair, don't you? What is it about those moments that cause us to be so tempted to despair? What is it about those moments? Well, I I think that that the reason that we're so tempted to despair in those moments is because we have experienced in those moments what can best be described as a disruptive event in our lives. And here's what I mean by a disruptive event. Here's how I would describe it. A disruptive event is a contradiction to your model of reality. A disruptive event is a contradiction to your model of reality. In other words, you encounter something that in your understanding of how life works just can't or shouldn't happen, and it smashes your paradigms. And these disruptive events can often be very terrifying. They can be very disorienting. It is, there's really nothing more terrifying in life than learning that though you were certain that you were flying right side up all along, you've really been flying upside down. You were sure that you had life figured out, or maybe, maybe you were sure that you had God figured out, and that everything was manageable. Every, this is how life works. This is how God works, and you have kind of certain little formulas and sayings for how life goes, and then all of a sudden, Bam! Something comes along and you realize, wait a minute, life isn't manageable at all. It's just little old me. And everything I thought was true about how life works, it's not true. That's what Joseph, I think, is experiencing in chapter 39 and in chapter 40. I think he goes through something like that and maybe maybe you have gone through something like that recently as well. Maybe you did lose your job. Maybe your marriage did fall apart. Maybe God didn't come through for you the way that you were certain he would and the way that all of the TV preachers and all of the Christian books said he would. And you were tempted this morning to despair. Maybe you're not tempted. Maybe you are despairing. I want you to take heart this morning if that's where you are. If you have been through some disruptive event like that, and you are tempted to despair, I want you to take heart this morning. We feel the temptation to despair most acutely 
when we are on the threshold of a profound revelation of God, let me say it again, we feel the temptation to despair most acutely when we are on the threshold of a profound revelation of God. In other words, God uses these disruptive events in our lives to prod us to ask big questions that we would otherwise have never asked and we would otherwise never learn the answers to had it not been for these disruptive events. Any of you guys ever read uh, C.S. Lewis' book, uh, The Screwtape Letters? You ever read that book? Okay. If you haven't read that book, uh, I would highly recommend you read it. It's a lot of fun. It's really quick. And um, I think you'll enjoy reading this book. It's, it's not a hard read. Um, this book is about a senior devil, a senior devil who's writing letters to his nephew, who's a junior devil, who's still uh, out on the tempting field. And the senior devil's name is Screwtape. And Screwtape is in retirement, or, or at least he's... At least he's off the tempting field and he's higher up in the, in the bureaucracy of hell. And this book is about Screwtape giving advice to his nephew. And he starts to tell his nephew one of the best ways to make sure that your patient, he calls him, your patient, the person that the uh, junior devil is assigned to, starts to tell him one of the best ways to make sure that your patient never falls into the clutches of the enemy. And of course, the enemy is Jesus. And he says, here's what he says. It's, it's kind of long, but it, it's, it's worth reading it. He says, the trouble about argument is that it moves the whole struggle onto the enemy's own ground. By the very act of arguing, you awake the patient's reason. And once it's awake, who can foresee the result? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor, you will find that you have been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream, teach him to call it real life, and don't let him... Uh, Think about what he means by real. Remember, he is not like you, a pure spirit. You don't realize how enslaved these humans are to the pressure of the ordinary. He says, I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind begging to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. He said, before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I immediately suggested that it was just about uh, time that he had some lunch. The enemy presumably made the counter-suggestion. You know how no one can ever quite overhear what he says to them? He says he he made the counter-suggestion that this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line. For when I said, quite, in fact, much too important to tackle at the end of a morning, the patient brightened up considerably. And by the time I had added, much better to come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway out the door. Once he was in the street, 
the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting in the street with the midday paper and the number 73 bus going past. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had gotten him into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. He knew he'd had a narrow escape, and in later years, he was fond of talking about that inarticulate sense of actuality, which is our ultimate safeguard against the aberrations of mere logic. (laughs) He is now safe in our Father's house. What Lewis is trying to convey in this very creative way is that there are very real spiritual forces at work in our lives that are trying to keep us away from the big questions of life. What does life mean? What is, what, what is it about? What is the meaning of life? Is there a God? And if there is a God, what is he like? You see, um, it's only when these disruptions come along, like this one with Joseph, where God doesn't come through in the way that Joseph thinks he should come through, or your own disruptions, when something happens that contradicts your understanding of how life works, it's only then that we get out of the stream of life as we think we know it and consider that there might be a whole different model of reality than the one that we live by. Now, I want to tell you that disruptive events, they come in all, all shapes and sizes. But I'll, let me just mention four disruptive Four kinds of disruptive events very quickly. There are more, but just let me mention four real quickly. The first is that they can come in the form, disruptive events can come in the form of an inexplicable person. Like someone who acts or behaves in a way that in your model of reality and understanding of people, you just can't account for. Like in my mid-20s, I came to believe in Jesus Christ through a few people who responded to my attempts to argue with all of their beliefs and even to make them angry. I did my very best to make them angry. They responded to me with a love and a patience uh, that I couldn't understand. And that blew my understanding of people and my model of reality away. Why would they treat me like that? Why would they be so loving and so patient with me? It can come in the form of an inexplicable person. A disruptive event can also come in the form of an inexplicable train of thought. Like suddenly you see a contradiction in your view of reality that you never saw before. I read a story the other day about a guy who had prided himself on being a secular person, an empiricist. Uh, someone who, he, you know, he, didn't, he never believed in God, he never believed in anything that he couldn't prove himself. But he suddenly began to realize that if his worldview was correct, nothing in life had any meaning at all. And if nothing had meaning, then he should never find himself moved by beauty. He should never find himself bothered by injustice. In fact, there really can't be a thing such as, uh, there can't be anything such as real injustice if there is no God and if there is no meaning in life. And, And there would be nothing like morals either. But he inexplicably inexplicably felt compelled to live a moral life. And he was inexplicably compelled, or or, excuse me, moved by beauty. 
and inexplicably troubled by injustice. And he just couldn't understand that. Where did that come from? And it was a disruptive event in his life. Disruptive events can also come in the form of an inexplicable sense of meaninglessness. Like you've got everything in life that you ever thought you wanted. You've got the job, you've got the money, you've got the car, you've got the wife, you've got the family, you've got the house, you've got the title, you've got the clothes, you've got the prestige. And still, you feel completely meaningless. Like empty, like there's this huge vacuum in your soul. By the way, there's a whole book of the Bible that goes after that topic. It's, it's the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. It just deals with that sense of meaninglessness when you have everything. And so that can be a disruptive event in your life. Or finally, really most pertinent to the one that we're talking about today, a disruptive event can come in the form of an inexplicable trouble, like the one that Joseph has experienced and maybe some of you have experienced recently as well, or maybe you will experience tomorrow. An inexplicable trouble where you thought you had life figured out or you had God figured out and here's how life works and here's the way God works and all of a sudden reality smashes into your paradigm or God doesn't do what you thought he would do and all of a sudden you are despairing or at least you're tempted to despair and you find yourself asking some big questions of life that you never had asked before and as confounding and confusing and often terrifying as those moments can be and as much as they tempt you to despair about life, God uses these powerfully in our lives. And if you're there today, I just want you to know that you are on the threshold of a profound revelation of God. And I want to mention just two ways that God can use these disruptive events in your life. And maybe the one that you're going through right now. Two ways that God may use this in your life. Here's the first one. God often uses these disruptive events to reveal self-deceptions that you didn't know that you were living with. God often uses disruptive events to reveal self-deceptions that you didn't even know that you were living with. And and by the way, this is as true for the person this morning who may be here just searching for God. Uh, Maybe you came here this morning. Maybe there was some disruptive event in your life. And you came here this morning and you're thinking, I wonder if there's anything true about this whole God thing. It's as true for that person as it is true for the person who has walked with God for decades. Some of you have walked with God for decades here. And I want you to know that God can use these disruptive events in your life to reveal self-deceptions that you didn't know that you were living with. Maybe you're here this morning and you would consider yourself to be genuinely a Christian. You would would say, I'm born again. and, And you would say, Jesus is my savior. But then something happened. Some inexplicable trouble came along and all of a sudden you're ready to slit your throat. Why? Why, why, are you, why are you so ready to slit your throat? Well, I would argue that it's because you thought that Jesus was your meaning in life. You thought that Jesus was your righteousness and honor and glory. But this disruptive event has revealed to you 
that in reality, you've been depending upon something other than Jesus for your sense of well-being and your sense of, of meaning in life. And that's not to say that you're not a Christian. It just says that Jesus alone really hasn't been your Savior. It's been Jesus plus this, this, this other thing, and you never knew it. Like, did you notice in this passage, there's an irony in this passage I don't know if you, if you picked up. Did you notice in this passage what Potiphar's wife used against Joseph to convict him? What was the evidence that she used? Yeah, it was his, it was his cloak. He ran, she tore it, and then she used it. She showed it to Potiphar as proof of his crime. Now, let me ask you another question. What was it that got Joseph in trouble with his brothers? Those of you who've been with us throughout the series, what was it that got Joseph in trouble with his brothers to begin with? It was his expensive, lavish robe. These clothes that signified Joseph's uniqueness and his power and his status are the very things that brought pain and chaos into his life. What's the point of all of that? The point is... Everything you cling to other than Christ as your Savior, whether it's your job, your status, your power, your money, your family, your reputation, all of those things that you cling to will leave you despairing. They will leave you fragile. They will leave you frightened when you find yourself without them. And someday you will. God uses these disruptive events in our lives to reveal our self-deceptions that leave us more weak and more fragile than we really even know. And I also also want you to see that that God uses these uh, disruptive events in our lives to reveal where his greatness contradicts our imagination. To reveal where his greatness contradicts our imagination. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in our culture is that there are a lot of people today that would say that they're searching for God. But often, not always, but often, um, you find if you talk to them about it that what they're searching for is a God who will be what they want him to be. In other words, I, here's something that I have often heard from people. You've, I'm sure you've heard this uh, before too. Um, like this. I believe in a God who is all loving and good. My God doesn't judge anyone, and my God would never allow anyone to suffer. Have you ever heard that one before? Um, I've also noticed this tendency within the Christian community as well. In fact, I will tell you that I may have noticed this more in the Christian community than I have in the rest of the world. Because in the Christian community, we have a lot of cliches about how God is supposed to work in our lives. Let me give you one that I've heard many times before. You do the right thing, and God will honor it. You ever heard that one? You ever said that one? Yeah, you're not going to nod your head on that, are you? You do the right thing, and God will honor it. What, do you, um, what would you say to Joseph? How would you explain that to Joseph? He did the right thing. And he's in prison. How do, you, how do you explain people who've been martyred for, for their faith in Christ and for not denying their faith in Christ? 
They did the right thing. And they died. They were killed. How do you explain that? There's a scene, it's, it's in another passage in the Old Testament. It's, it's a great scene, and it's a place where God reveals himself to another leader of Israel. His name is Moses. And this is how God describes himself to Moses. It's in Exodus chapter 3. He says this. This is how he describes himself. I am who I am. Now notice, it's interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't say, I will be whoever you want me to be. I am whoever you want. If you want me to just be all loving and good and and forget about justice, I'll be that. If you want me to be predictable and come through for you in the way that you want me to come through for you, whenever you want it, I'll be that. He doesn't say those things, does he? He says, um, I am who I am. And you know what this does? When he says this? This puts the onus on you and me to come to him as he is. In other words, what it says is you revolve around him. He doesn't revolve around you. He is the subject and the object of life, not you. And so you have to come to him as he is. And every time that he uses one of these disruptive events to reveal himself to you, you have to ask yourself again, do I want to worship this God? Do I want to worship a God who is not controllable by me? Do I want to worship a God that I can't manage, that I can't manipulate, that I can't get to do what I want him to do when I want him to do it? Do I want to worship that God? (laughs) But at the same time, as you're making that decision, you need to know this, that there is nothing more important in life than knowing who God is and thinking about him correctly. If you don't know God accurately, at worst, you will miscalculate all of your life and you will spend eternity regretting the fact that you never got to know him as he is. And at best, you will find yourself fragile, fearful, despairing, confounded, confused, and despairing in this life. God wants to reveal to you that he is greater than you can even imagine. I feel certain that Joseph was tempted to despair in chapters 39 and 40 when God didn't come through for him in the way that he undoubtedly thought that God would come through for him. But in the coming weeks, Joseph learned, in the passages that we're going to look at in the coming weeks, Joseph learned that God was far greater than he had even imagined and that he had indeed come through for Joseph. Not in the way that Joseph wanted him to come through. He came through in a bigger, better way. That all of this, all of this imprisonment, look, it's as much as 13 years of imprisonment for a crime that he never committed. That all 13 years of this imprisonment have been for his good, but not in a way that he ever dreamed of it being for his good. And by not doing what Joseph wanted him to do, God did something greater. He turned him, this arrogant, self-centered young man, he turned him into a man who will rescue two nations and who will keep the hope of a coming Messiah who will rescue all the nations of the world. He kept that hope alive through Joseph. And if you're here this morning, 
and you're thinking that you understood life or you understood God and some inexplicable person maybe or some inexplicable event came along and smashed all of your paradigms and you're tempted to despair, I want you to know, I want you to take heart that you are on the threshold this morning of a profound revelation of God. If you'll let him do his work in you, if you'll let him show you who he is, not who you wanted him to be, but who he really is, you will walk away from this event stronger, wiser, more unshakable, more peaceful than you are today. And he will transform you into someone that you couldn't even begin to imagine this morning. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together as a church. And I don't know if you realize that, but when we celebrate communion, we are, we are celebrating the single most disruptive moment in all of human history, the cross of Christ. Now, the reason that I say it was the single most disruptive moment in all of human history is that if you study the philosophies of the world, if you study the religions of the world, you will see how inexplicable it is, how people can't even begin to fathom that God would act in the way God acts on the cross. It is unimaginable to the human mind. In every religion of the world that you will ever study, you will find that man always must appease the gods by offering sacrifices and performing right for them. In other words, in other words, you've got to get your act together for the gods. You've got to please them. You've got to make sure that you appease the gods or you'll never be accepted by the gods. And the reason that that's the way every world religion is is because that's how man thinks of God naturally. But in Christianity, God does something inexplicable. God appeases God. By dying on a cross in the person of his son, he dies on the cross for humanity. There's an inexplicable person for you, the Lord Jesus Christ. A king who would serve, a Messiah who would sacrifice himself, a God who would appease God out of his love for humanity. That's inexplicable. And if you will pay close attention to that inexplicable person of Jesus and allow him to guide you down what for you may be an inexplicable train of thought, he will always lead you to the cross where your life now and for all of eternity will be changed by what an inexplicable person did for you. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. The most disruptive event in all of human history. The ushers are going to come up. They're going to pass out the elements of communion. You'll find that you're going to get a cup. It's going to have, thank you very much, Chris. You're going to get a cup. It's got the juice on the bottom. And then on the top, underneath, there's a little tab that you can pull. There is a, a wafer. If you will just hold on to this, we're going to take the elements together in a moment. The band's going to come up. They're going to play some music as the ushers pass these out. 
And then we'll take them together in just a moment. Just, just hang on to these as we celebrate the most disruptive event in all of human history, the cross of Jesus Christ. When we take communion, the thing that we're celebrating, as I said, is the most disruptive moment in human history, but um, we're celebrating that God did something that we couldn't even begin to imagine. We were guilty, and God paid the price for our sins. He took our guilt in the person of Jesus on the cross. The body of Jesus was broken for my sins. And when I take communion, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. And Jesus died. His body had to be broken for me. And Jesus said to his disciples, he said, he said, when you do this, eat this in remembrance of me. But it wasn't just... Uh, Jesus' body that was broken. His blood was also shed. His blood was shed for my sins. Jesus didn't deserve the death that he died. He didn't deserve being crucified on a cross. But it was only through the sacrifice of God himself in the person of Jesus that the sins of humanity could be forgiven and that hope could be could be realized in the person of Jesus. And so his blood was shed on a cross. When I drink this, I'm acknowledging that I'm a sinner and that apart from Jesus' blood, my sins could never have been forgiven. I needed a Savior. And the only Savior that was qualified to pay for my sins was Jesus and Jesus himself. Jesus said to his disciples, when you drink this, do so in remembrance. Jesus, we, we eat and we drink remembering you. We're reminded that the cross of Jesus Christ, your cross, Lord Jesus, changes everything. It changes our lives here in the present and it changes our lives in the future. We acknowledge every one of us here this morning 
that has a relationship with you, we would acknowledge that we, we have our own self-deceptions. We trust in things other than you. But Lord Jesus, would you continue to reveal yourself to us and draw us closer and closer to you and so that our trust is in you and you alone. And then, Lord, for those that are here this morning that maybe they, you know, maybe something's happened that's caused them to consider that maybe, possibly, there might be something to this thing that God exists. Lord, would you reveal to them the uniqueness of Christianity, that it's unlike any other world religion, in that you did for us what only you could do. And you did it out of love for this this person, these people this morning that maybe be considering relationship with you. And it's in your name, Lord, Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray.